Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host this time around. My name is Kevin Estella, the lead survival instructor, media guy, kind of jack of all trades. You guys are in for a really, really, really good time today because I get to interview someone else who is a kind of jack of all trades, master of every one of those trades or someone who I highly respect. But guys, before we get to the interview with Jerry Young, I want to talk about Black Rifle Coffee. Black Rifle Coffee is what I am currently consuming. I've got it in my coffee mug that, I don't know, I guess it was kind of like a like a beige coffee mug, but it's turned brown because I never wash it. People think it's really gross when you do that, but quite honestly, it's just coffee, right? Like how bad could it be? And if it's germs, it's just my germs. So right now I'm drinking just black, but uh, I'll tell you, I think the Flying Elk is my new favorite Black Rifle Coffee blend um, or brew, whatever you want to call it. And we have all of it over at Fieldcraft Survival HQ, and we drink it here at production. And I'll tell you, it's pretty much in our veins. I think it's part of our DNA right now. I don't know what Evan and the boys over there put into this coffee, but I'll tell you, it's it's what keeps me flowing. Uh, as long as it's flowing from my mug into my mouth, I'm good to go. Oh, Jesus, that was way too hot. My mouth is on fire. Um, I think I just swallowed lava. All right, so uh, this podcast is uh, brought to you by our good friends over at Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, they're in Salt Lake City. We stop by there all the time. They host some really cool events. Um, you know, my good friend Dana from Kafaru, she's over there now. And uh, yeah, we we enjoy hanging out with those those folks. So please check them out. Get some of their ready-to-drink stuff. Um, get their instant coffee. Get their K-cups. They call them coffee rounds. Guys, you can find Black Rifle Coffee pretty much everywhere. Uh, veteran-owned company. They employ a lot of veterans. Solid, solid people. They make all their own t-shirts. They do all sorts of stuff over there. Please, please support them. Uh, as I mentioned, this podcast is going to feature one of our Fieldcraft Survival instructors, Jerry Young, and I know he's a coffee drinker. So we're going to get to this podcast right now, and I think you guys are in for a treat. So here we go. Jerry Young, my good friend. <laughs> my good friend of all these years. How the hell are you today? Good, sir. How are you? Oh, my God. Uh, pretty good. You know, we we just had a company meeting. I usually do these podcasts right afterwards. And, you know, and we get all pumped up. And you've been on, in on those meetings. Uh, you know, I kind of get excited for where the company is going. And now I get to take that excitement and bring it to this podcast talking to you. And we get to talk about all sorts of stuff that I know people are going to want to hear. Because, uh, I mean, let's just face it. There's, there's a lot of stuff in your history that's quite interesting. And uh, you are definitely the king of one-liners. So, uh, man, it's, it's been a day. Yeah. So <clears throat> let's, let's just start talking and just shoot the proverbial, you know what? Um, I'm trying to remember the first time we talked and I'm pretty sure I've got an idea and I'm pretty sure it was before a winter trip in 2006, uh, to, was it slush pond? Um, no, I think we might have actually met at the original war. Were you at the original mm. war at the wilderness learning center? Yeah, that, that, so that was that September. Yes. So we yep. met, we met so briefly. Been, yep. And then we went on the slush pond trip. Yeah. No, no, we did. The, I think we did a winter trip at Marty's property first. Cause it was me, you, Aggie, Marty, and Tom. Tom Shaka. Yeah. yeah from, from camping survival. Um, which one came first? I think, was it slush pond that came first or was it, 
the winter trip. You know, it might be because Scott Gossman and Ed was there because that's where I fell in love with the Tusker. That's when you chopped down the tree with that knife. Yes, the frozen pine tree that we chopped yeah. down with a knife and you could still shave hair with it. Yeah, and I remember uh, that, that was funny because we were like, why don't they just use an axe? But it like a lot of the time... Back then, it, was, it wasn't about using the right tool. It was kind of like testing all these other tools to see like, okay, if you don't have the tool that you want, can you get by with the tool that you have? And I remember everyone was like, holy crap. I think we all bought Gossman knives after that trip. Well, I think that I think he, that was the first Tusker ever made, and I believe I have the second Tusker he ever made. So, <laughs> Yeah, and you eventually, uh, let's see. I mean, I think you posted up about that knife recently. And if you guys are, are listening... Uh, Scott's Tusker is this giant, um, giant Bowie knife. And you originally, I think had mesquite as a handle and then you were like, no, I want something tougher. And then you had it rehandled in Micarta, right? Yep. Yeah. Scott rehandled it in nice green Micarta, which is well seasoned now. Yeah. It's got your, your juices on it. Damn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, God, I'm, I'm trying to think like, I don't think from our group of friends, I mean, aside from maybe Scott and Ed, like the original guys that we go camping with. I, I think I, I've known you the longest. Um, we shared some interesting history in the woods with uh, teaching you how to wipe your boat with snow. Um, yep. <laughs> which people still are like, there's no way you can do that. And I'm like, yeah, it's a, it's a clean wipe. It's a, it's a refreshing wipe. And you were like, when I got to work, what, like, remember what you told me, how people thought you were nuts? Yep. Well, they still do, but yes. Man. So let's, let's tell everyone, uh, when we met, you were still a patrol officer, right? Yes. When when we met, I was an officer with Troy Police at that point in time. Yeah. And and guys, Troy, just so you know, it's north of Albany, right? Uh, no, it's actually east. It's it, like northeast a little bit. Okay. It's bordered by the river. Yeah. And, and it's not exactly the, the safest place. I mean, there are some nice parts of it, but then there are some parts that are pretty, pretty rough. Um, so you cut your teeth there. And then you well no actually I started part time out in Hoosick Falls really I never knew that oh you didn't no. oh I guess we got to start there then all right yeah so go ahead I was a volunteer fireman and on the volunteer ambulance and a couple of the guys on the fire department were like hey they're looking for police officers in the village why don't you go fill out an application so I did and then the this is a small town here so the mayor actually owned a barber shop. So I went for my interview in the barber shop. I got sworn in at the village board meeting on a Thursday night. And that following Saturday, they called me and said, Hey, we need somebody to work the road. Come to the station. And we'll put a gun belt and a uniform together for you. So I had absolutely zero training, zero experience. And they're like, it was like Barney Fife stuff. Like here's a badge, here's a gun, go to town. Jeez. So that was a, Looking back now, I would never do that because there's so much liability. But then I guess it was okay. Wow. So while I was on Hoosick Falls Police, the chief told me, he goes, I know you're not going to stay here. I know you're going to move on. So I'm going to sign you to the county drug task force. So I was only at the academy like six months. I got assigned to the county drug task force. So I was on that from 97 to 2000. And that was an eye opener. Here's this hick, you know, from a small town that gets tossed into the city. I worked undercover for like six months making buys, picking up prostitutes, getting beat up by them, the whole shooting match. Jeez. And, but that, 
that was actually based out of Troy Police Station. So that got my foot in the door of Troy Police, and that's how I got. I took the test and got hired by Troy Police. And then you eventually moved on to to where you are now, right? More of a right. suburb. I left 2007. I left Troy and came over to Bethlehem Police, where I currently am. And I was here almost two years, just under two years, and I was able to make detective, and I've been a detective since here. Right, and then you've also done the fire training and the SWAT stuff, right? Yeah, I was a, a cause and origin investigator, so a fire investigator, traffic crash investigator, a firearms instructor, general topics instructor, sniper. <laughs> uh, there's, I don't know, there's probably some other hats I wear that I'm missing. Damn. And all the while, right? Like all the while you were into the outdoors, uh, you've taken a bunch of classes. I mean, you, you've gone through all the classes at the Wilderness Learning Center when that was in operation, but then you also, didn't you do one down in Florida? Uh, and then- yeah, with um, Madison Parker, we did a, it was a slingshot hunting survival trip somewhere in a swamp down there that we camped out and it was minimal. Like you were hunting and fishing for your own food and sleeping on the ground. And that was my first experience with like a real, real swampy stuff. And at night I got up to use the restroom and I turned my headlight on and it looked like there was glitter all over the ground. And I'm like, Oh, I wonder what that is. It was spiders. Oh, geez. And we were sleeping on the ground. So (sighs) yeah, Madison Parker is, is no joke. I mean, the guy's a former seal and, uh, I remember hearing your stories about that trip and, and what you were aiming at and how high they were. And then, you know, just like just some of the wild aspects of that trip. And I mean, I, it's not for the faint of heart. There's no doubt about it. Oh, no, no, no. It's a, uh, it's kind of, it's a good gut check. I enjoyed it. I mean, it was a great time and learned a lot. Yeah. But you've always been, you've always been that type. That's been like just on the edge of getting hurt and training. <laughs> like I remember yeah. you got, you got into uh and it's funny because I know with your, with your wife, we've talked a few times and she's like, yeah, Jerry just gets, just gets all in, you know? And, uh, I remember the time when you were like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to really get into rucking and, and doing these crazy, crazy runs. And we did that, uh, that mud run together and then yeah, the warrior dash, <laughs> which was so ridiculous if you think about it. And, um, I mean, it was fun. It was totally fun, but, uh, I mean, you got into that, you got into doing CrossFit for a while, like you've done it all. I like, I like to try new things. Yeah. And then of course, one of the things that you tried, you, uh, <laughs> you got a phone call. I don't remember when this phone call was, um, but I know it was sometime around April cause that's when the course was. And I was like, Hey Jerry, we got this class called breakout. <laughs> um, so do you want to do it? So kind of talk us through what that what that was like, your experience, like joining the Fieldcraft ranks first as like an assistant instructor to eventually become, you know, a primary for med and, and all that great stuff. Well, it was you, you called and said, do you want to come out for breakout? You know, we'll take care of getting you out here. Would you be willing to volunteer your time? And I was like, and you explained what the class was. And I was like, absolutely. I am in for that. You know, I get to go play in Utah mountains for a week. I'm in. And then, but arrival was just like, everybody at Fieldcraft, like, greeted you like you, they had known you forever and just, they just accepted me in. Like, it was just like, oh, okay, he's here with us. And it was, it was just like open arms. Like everybody had known me for a while and it was, 
it was an awesome experience and it continues to be. Do you remember the first thing you taught for us? The first actual thing I taught was the stop the bleed, I think. And what, no, what? I canceled that. I, I assisted Austin with a hunter med class because <laughs> I got off the, I got off the plane in Salt Lake city. We drove to where we were staying, dumped our bags. I pulled into HQ and you're like, okay, come on. We're going over to the other place. Austin's there. And I walked in and Austin was already teaching and he said, okay, start in. And I introduced myself and started being an assistant instructor with Austin. So yeah, I remember that. And that was kind of funny because you're like, Oh, we can do the tour tomorrow or, or another time. And that was the class that I think, uh, Bree from Montana grid outdoors was there. Um, yeah. Yep. And, and it was hot just, Greg was there. Yep. Hot Greg was there who was eventually, uh, one of our, our students in breakout. And, uh, then you just had to flip the switch. I think we started, I think that was that Saturday you had off. And then we started breakout on Sunday, right? Yep. I think, yeah, that's how it went. Yeah. Yeah. Sunday, at, Sunday at fire, we had to be there, but we all got there a little bit early to, so Kevin Owens could read us in on everything we were going to do and be a part of. So, yeah. And, and for that class, uh, there was, I mean, the waiver was ridiculous because it had to be right. Like we, like as I read the waiver and, and this video is coming out by the way, soon guys, um, as I read the waiver, it was kind of like, uh, I, uh, consent to being in the presence of gunfire. I consent to, uh, being subjected to high speed vehicle maneuvering and like all these things. And the, the reactions, I couldn't see people's faces as I read it, but I looked up from time to time and jaws were dropping, right? Because there's no class that was really, uh, ever put on like this. And some guys had an idea of like, okay, this is kind of like a quasi Robin Sage event. But the funny part was, is that I think what we enjoyed the most was we kind of ran with certain things that happened that <laughs> like we couldn't script. It just worked out perfectly. No, stuff just fell in the line and it was, yeah. man. And it I was good. Like seeing him having interviewed a couple people in my career, look, watching all the reactions as you were reading that waiver, you could see like the tension building there, but you could see like their shoulders tighten up. They were grasping their own hands. They were taking defensive postures that you could just see was like, had their attention before we started. Let, oh, before we continue with talking about breakout, let's talk about what you just mentioned there. Uh, like interviewing people. Um, have you ever had anyone ask you like, how do you know when someone's lying to you? Like, what do you notice? There's, there's, I mean, everybody's different. The best thing to know, I mean, uh, it's not like big secrets. You can read books on it is you have to know what you're going to ask them before you ask them. So they, you know, and you want to give them information. So you, it's almost like a, like a lie detector test without the science in it. Mm -hmm. So you're going to ask them questions that they know answers to, and you know, are going to be correct. And then you get into the other ones. I mean, there's lots of that. You can just tell by their body posture. You can, their eyes, there's different motions. The eyes will make when they're thinking of something or when they're recalling something from memory, there's, most of it, I mean, if you watch their hands, their hands and eyes, you can just tell a lot. Damn. And then, then there's other little things, you know, you can move into them and get close to them and get them to tell you what you want. I'll tell you. I, and then other times it doesn't work at all. You get a hard criminal and yeah. you, you could end up going to blows in the interview room instead. Have you ever like used the, the good cop, bad cop routine? Yeah, usually it ends up starting like good cop, good cop, and then ends up going bad cop, bad cop, because you just kind of feed off each other. 
Yeah. But you sometimes you do switch off. Like you'll have, send somebody in there, soften them up, then you bring somebody in to you know really be hard at them, and that's more to so they develop a good rapport with the good cop, and then mm-hmm. the bad cop stays an asshole. If I'm allowed to swear in this. <laughs> oh, um, oh yeah, yeah, you can say whatever you yeah, want. So he, and then he he stays in that position, and, and it's good. It just usually they'll end up talking to the other guy first. When we did that breakout class, I, you know, the the whole time I was trying to not be the, the hard ass because at the very end, like when I got quote unquote shot, you know, we wanted to have like a certain reaction, but right off the bat, you came in there, you found a pair of underwear in the bathroom. And I remember <laughs> like that, that's still one of my favorite videos from, from the, the event. Like I went in the bathroom and I think I came out and I was like, Jerry, they left underwear in the bathroom and you came out holding the underwear and you're like, who did this? Who did this? And then what did you do to the guy that left the underwear? Did you say like, you have to stand. No, I made here. I made him stand with the underwear in his hand, held up <laughs> while the other people did PT. So you're basically like, like I cannot yeah. believe they speak to me after that course. I was that big of a oh, jerk to them. You like, were I'm a total like, prick. There's no way. Yeah, you were a total oh, yeah. prick. It was great. It, it it was funny because I, as you were doing it, I just got these these flashbacks to watching Full Metal Jacket with like Arlie Ermy being like, "Why are you not allowed to have donuts, Private Pile?" You know, and <laughs> and like he's eating the donut as everyone's doing pushups around him. But uh, yeah, that that class was wild. And I mean, we're gonna we're gonna run it again. Um, you know, there's talk of doing it in North Carolina and changing up the scenario. But I I hope I hope. We've got a we got a spot for you on the on the role player team because I mean you bring a different element to the dynamic with with the students and the instructors. Damn! Um, but since breakout, you've done a whole bunch of stuff. Like we've taught the hunter prep class and the shotgun class. We did the you've done I don't know how many med courses um, out in it's in Glenmont, New York, right? Yes. Yep. We've done there. We actually we did the med. Uh, Nate Jones and I did the med class in Connecticut. Yep. And then we've done a couple up here in Glenmont. Uh, we've done actually a couple hunter meds out in HQ mm-hmm. and one survival med, one or two survival meds out there also and numerous like stop the bleeds. Yeah. I'm working right now with Kevin Owens. We're trying to figure out uh, when we can do the shotgun course again. Um, I really think you know, even though shotguns have fallen out of favor for like patrol rifles, I still think they are such a valuable tool for the, like the homestead to put down any animal that walks onto your property, <laughs> two-legged or four-legged. Um, but what's your experience with the shotgun? I mean, I know you own one of my old shotguns and uh, let's talk about like some of the things that like the shotgun can do for the average person. I've, I grew up hunting, so I grew up with shotguns, but when I was in Troy Police, I actually got to go through the Tactical Shotgun Instructors course, which was taught by, uh, there they were LAPD SWAT guys who actually came out and taught it. Uh, it was we Law Enforcement Advanced Development was the name of the group. I don't know if they're still working. I'm sure they are, but the instruction was just phenomenal. Like, we shot, like, in excess of 500 rounds of shotgun that week. And it was just like, like after the first day, I literally was black and blue from my elbow all the way up down into my rib cage. <laughs> so I wore, I wore a tack vest the rest of the time, but I, I get people will argue with me all the time, but in an urban environment, I will take a shotgun over a rifle most of the time. Really? Just because if it's a close area where I'm not going to take more than a 50 yard shot, 
I am comfortable taking a 50 yard shot with a slug. So, I mean, 50 yards is a lot for inside an urban environment, but it's just the versatility of the shotgun. You can load it with slugs, buckshot, birdshot. Like if we have to dispatch animals, rather than shooting it a whole bunch of times with a handgun, I'll throw a load of birdshot in to dispatch the animal because I'm still putting a large amount of lead It'll go into the animal, safely euthanize it, and then I don't have to worry about over-penetration or anything like that. So the versatility of the shotgun is the thing. And you can, you know, use smaller gauges for smaller statured people. Like like my wife is a small woman, so, you know, I, I could give her a 20-gauge or even a 410, and she'd be able to safely shoot it and control it. I mean, a 12-gauge would obviously be a little too much, but a, a smaller gauge is definitely capable of doing damage, especially the length of a living room or a hallway in a common house. Yeah. I think people forget like a double odd buckshot round has nine 30 caliber pellets coming at you. Right. So it's nine, nine millimeter bullets, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. uh, one of the funniest things that happened when we taught that shotgun class was, you know, we put a couple of rounds through that range car that we have. And, you know, for those of you that are still shaking your head, like, why is Jerry using birdshot to dispatch animals? When you shoot a car up close with birdshot, you're not going to find a large pattern. You're going to find a really, really tight condensed uh, or really tight hole that all that birdshot went through. So it's not like a slug where you've got an ounce of lead, but you have an ounce of, of pellets that's holding together in like a one inch diameter. Um, man. So what are you, what are well, you related really, really to that though? You have like, the breaching rounds for a 12 gauge shotgun usually have an offset barrel and stuff, but you could conceivably shoot them out of a regular shotgun. All that is, is just, I think it's like powdered tungsten or it's some other mm -hmm. powder thing that goes in, energy hits the lock, blows the lock through the door and you don't have to worry about over penetration or anything. All the energy stays there and then you make the entry. Yeah. In I mean, I've never used breaching rounds. Um, I've done some screwed up things with shotguns. Like I've done, uh, the cut shells, um, which I don't even mm -hmm. want to, I don't want to tell people how to do them, but I'll just say guys research cut shells and you'll find how amazing it is. Um, and you know, my favorite thing from that shotgun class, quite honestly, is just patterning. You know, I like showing people like, Hey, look, let's see the limitations of buckshot out of your gun. And, you know, my gun that I used on that last course was like a 20 inch barreled uh, Mossberg 590. Um, and we van comped it, but then I was using the federal flight control rounds and people think, oh, it's a shotgun. It's not accurate. It's a shotgun. Oh, you just point it. And to some degree, yes, but there are modifications. There, there are things that you can use with your gun to make them or make it more potent. And I mean, if you don't know where you start dropping rounds off of the B zone on that target, like that's, a, that's a liability, right? So, um, what are some of the things Jared, that you think the average person should know about their shotgun or know how to do? Well, they definitely need to know how to load it and unload it or download it correctly. So they're not jacking shotgun rounds all over the place. That's one thing that we cover in the class and try to really like beat into people's heads and it was beat into my head from the law enforcement standby because you don't want an officer out on the street we have a bad enough image as it is but you don't want them out there you know working the slide on a pump shotgun you know jacking rounds all over the thing besides the fact that that large 209 primer if it's hit right could discharge because it's a very large primer so you know loading unloading transitioning rounds, switching out rounds from the chamber from a buckshot to a slug, 
but like you said, patterning and knowing where that shotgun shoots because out of a typical improved cylinder 18-inch barrel, standard double-odd buckshot, every every yard it goes out of the barrel, your pattern spreads out one inch. So if you're at 20 yards, you your your pattern could be 20 inches, you know, a big 20-inch circle. Where with that with a van comp and that federal flight control, you're narrowing that down considerably because I think out of the 18 inch barrel, it was what like 26, 27 yards. We kept them all in the A zone. Yes. And you, uh, your shotgun, it was 30 or 31 that you were able to keep them all in the A zone. Yep. That's tight. That's tight for buckshot. Yeah, and the funny thing is, uh, that guy that ultimately won that student shoot off. Um, remember he was Asian. He ran that 870 that he had. Like his gun was so so uh, loose, and like the the bolt on that gun was silver because he just ran it so much. Uh, he messaged me afterwards. He goes, "Yeah, you just sold a, a Van Comp porting system." He goes, "I've never seen anything like that," <laughs> you know. Um, but that's the fun of those classes. Like you learn stuff that that you're not going to always see at the gun store or, you know, watch on YouTube, right? Like you cannot replace that in-person experience. And the good part about that course, and uh, I'm not, I won't name any specific gun models, but a pump shotgun has nowhere near the malfunctions or failures that a semi does. Unless you have a high-end semi-automatic shotgun, it's more than likely going to have issues with different rounds. Yeah, I was totally jealous, by the way, of the guy that was running that Benelli. Um, I think it was the same guy, the the Asian guy, because he had two guns with him. He had the 870 and he had a Benelli. And how fast he hit those targets when we did the you know three one way and then three back. I could yep. not believe how fast he could he could operate that gun. And by the way, I just found out that Addison purchased one. I, I if I told you the price that he bought a Benelli for, uh Oh geez, I like I I told Addison I I hate him for how much he got his his Benelli for, um, but aside from the the shotgun class, I mean like you've really kind of established yourself on the East Coast as like the the medic up in the New York tri-state area, um, and you know one of the stories that we talked about before we jumped on the podcast uh, was what inspired you to become a stop the bleed trainer, and this story is powerful. I think that it needs to be shared. Because I mean, when I heard it, it broke my heart, but I also realized like, wow, accidents happen. So what was the reason why you became the, the stop the bleed instructor? So I've always been involved in EMS and, you know, fire, we respond to EMS. So like I always had a knowledge of it and, but so a couple of years ago, we still don't know the specifics, but my father was working on a 357 Magnum revolver, the gun discharged it went into his upper right thigh. It took out his femoral artery and femoral veins. And he was dead before he got the call 911. Well, he was unconscious before he got the call 911 with the cell phone on his belt. And he was found three days later dead. So after I got done with all the emotions of dealing with losing a parent and trying to figure everything out, and I was able to get the specifics as to what his cause of death was because of my law enforcement background. I knew the pathologist. I knew the investigators, even though it was another jurisdiction. And they, they allowed me to, you know, get a little more information that normal people would, but I was able to find that out. But so after I got done with all the emotions dealing with that, I decided that I didn't want other people to have to deal with that. And if I could possibly help someone by them teaching them how to stop the bleed, if they had a major incident like that, 
um, I thought that that was the driving point for me to become a stop the bleed instructor because it's a serious thing. And had he had a tourniquet, it may or may not have saved his life, but it, he might've been at least be able to get help started if he had a tourniquet. Damn. I mean, that, I mean, I've heard that story now, I think three or four times since you told it to me for the first time and it, it never gets any easier. Um, I mean, my parents are older. My dad's 83. My mom is, is 74. Um, you know, I know that dealing with the, the death of a parent is coming, you know, and I hate to admit it, but it, it is coming, you know, uh, on a side note, what, what helped you get over the death of your dad? I think it was, I mean, friends was a major thing and it was actually a rough couple of years for me mm -hmm. because a month prior to my father passing away, uh, my sister died of cancer. And then a year and a half later, my mother ended up passing away from medical stuff. So it was like, I kind of got a good kick in the nuts for two years. And then, you know, I just, I just started applying myself to other things. I mean, you know, like just stayed working out good. And, but the, the training helps and being able to like actually talk about that, like, like I'm able to speak in front of groups and keep my composure about my father dying. But I know that like just the kind of person my father was, you know, he would want other people to learn from his mistakes. So that's why uh, we just, you know, keep that and keep training. And I, I was going a little stir crazy because I also blew my knee out during all that. So I took an EMT class. That's where I got my regular EMT. And then I took the exam and got my national registry for the EMT. Yeah. I think, I think when it comes to like dealing with grief and that grief can come on through divorce. It can come on through being broken up with losing a, a friend, a brother, a, a parent, uh, losing a pet. Even I think one of the most important things is to just not let your mind go idle. Right. Because oh, I'm not, I won't, I won't lie and say I didn't go in down a dark rabbit hole and mm -hmm. drink way more than I should have. And you know, well, it was quite an angry person for a while. Not that that takes much because I'm angry <laughs> most of the time anyways, but <laughs> But, yeah. you know, I, I was angry and, but, you know, my wife, you know, gave me lots of leeway to, you know, get stuff, you know, just kind of to grieve actually. And then, you know, have to go on and now I got a little girl that definitely helps keep things moving. Yeah. A little girl who, uh, who picks up pebbles and just eats them cause she thinks they're whatever. <laughs> oh yeah. She, she, everything goes in the mouth and she already wants to, she has a couple guns already has their own kettlebells. What's your plan to be? What's your plan for when the first guy shows up at your door? Right. I mean, I think we all have this, like I've got, I've got three nieces and I've already come up with this idea. I found out one of my nieces had a boyfriend and I didn't know about it. And then I found out that I guess they, they split up and I didn't know about that. And now I don't know who this kid is, but I will simply say if I ever meet him, it's going to be fun. Um, but <laughs> what's your plan for when your daughter has the first guy that shows up at your doorstep looking to say, Hey, I, uh, Mr. Young, I'm, I'm here to take out your daughter. I, I think we're going to go outside and have a little chat and I'm going to explain to him that nothing in the world means as much as she does to me. So if she gets hurt, you know, they'll never find a body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know what was that movie was it den of thieves the one with uh uh what's his name gerard butler where 
the the criminal counterpart brings in his friend or brings brings in the daughter's date into the garage and there's like the giant Samoan guy that's cursing at him in in you know his native tongue and all these other guys are are giving him like the the thousand yard stare and he's like yeah I just want you to know you know have have a great day you know <laughs> like I volunteer by the way I will be over there and I'm sure we could grab like Lieutenant Mike and Big John and a few of the other guys to uh to stand there and doing weird things. Like, oh yeah. There, there's definitely, that's one thing I'm very fortunate. I have a lot of, uh, good sized friends that are willing to assist. So, well, th- let's, let's talk about that for a second. Cause I remember you told me that when you were like a cop, uh, more patrol guys wanted to fight you. What was it about you that made guys want to want to fight you? I think it, I think part of it is just my stature just cause, I'm a little guy. I'm a run. I'll admit to it. Five foot seven, 155 pounds with rocks in my pockets. But you know what? I, I think that's part of the, when I learned how to fight, I mean, you get your ass kicked enough. You learn to take a good punch, I guess. And you've done, you've done some training and I know that, uh, you, you're smart and you carry a, a fixed blade. Um, what was your experience training in Filipino martial arts? Cause I think this is one of my favorite stories that you've told me when you met, uh, grew Alfred. That was one of the biggest eye openers and anybody that's in law enforcement that's out there listening, if they have the chance to take Sayak Kali, they need to jump in it a hundred percent because the first drill after we warmed up and did that stuff and he whacked me with a blade three or four times before he even knew what to do. And I was just like, anybody on the street with that much training is going to kill almost any cop because you're not going to defend it unless you have an idea what you're doing. It's, it was totally eye-opening yeah. and humbling. And I am not saying that, uh, I mean, I'll, I'm not far from the toughest person going. I mean, I like to think that I'm okay. And, you know, I'm pretty good about situ- situational awareness and seeing stuff coming, but the stuff he did to me was just like, holy shit. So <laughs> it was definitely an eye-opener. What's your everyday carry look like? On or off duty? Uh, Either one. Fire away. All right. So I'll do on duty right now. So strong side. I have the department issued Glock model 45 with a TRL seven light on it and a Safari land holster. Um, In my strong side front pocket, I have rope cuffs because they're backup cuffs, Uh, a Bic lighter, um, an Estella wilderness, Swiss army knife in my other strong side front pocket. I have a, uh, Amtac blade Northman with a reverse grip position on the sheath. Um, a small streamlight light in the pocket, uh, keys, some money, a key card to get in the station in the back pocket. On the other strong side is my wallet with ID. And on my belt, I have a spare mag and my handcuffs. And then I have a tourniquet and an ankle holster on my right ankle. So that, that's that's what I carry typically for on duty. Then I have all the other good stuff in the car, plates and guns and that kind of stuff. <laughs> what about off-duty? Off-duty, I typically carry my Glock 19, spare mag, carry the Amtac Northman, the other strong side, but I carry it in a belt position because it, it just it's easier with jeans on to pull that out. Uh, spare mag, 
stuff in the pockets is pretty much the same. I keep the, you know, lighter Swiss Army knife. So there's a ferro rod on the Northman sheath, both mm-hmm. of the Northman sheaths. So I do have a, a ferro rod with me. So I have a ferro rod and a lighter all the time. Off duty, I still keep the tourniquet on my ankle. I know it makes me weird or whatever, but I guess if I'm going to be making holes, I should stand the chance of getting holes made in me. So I carry the tourniquet there. Oh, and a bandana in my back pocket. One of the things, <clears throat> one was was that it for off duty? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that uh, I think is interesting about your job, for a while, you were in charge of uh, determining what uh, sidearms uh, your department carried. What's that whole process like? And is there any gear that you swear by? Like, this is the best thing we, we've ever adopted or anything like that? Well, we had, uh, so we kind of like, it kind of like not went up for bid or anything, but we kind of like put it out to the firearms instructors and the command staff, you know, what guns to look at. So they, we were, we came down to the final two where we were looking at the SIG 320 and the Glock 45. We want, we had Smith and Wesson M and P 45s. And we wanted to go to a higher round count and we have our department is progressive. So we're getting more, uh, small statured people, whether it be males or females. So we decided that nine millimeter may be better for accuracy and qualifications. So we shot all the guns and they went with the Glock over the SIG only because we are, everybody was already Glock armors. Now looking at it, I'm thinking maybe we should have went with the SIGs, but so we have a, we have a Glock 45s. Very happy with that. Now, why do you think you would have gone with the, the SIG? Is it because you can change the grip modules? Yes, which you can change. You know, you know what is it? The back straps? Mm-hmm. No, you can't on this model. Yep. Uh, so you got the back straps you can add on. So you can change a little bit for the Glock. I don't know if it's just the grip angle or the trigger reset or I guess if I was picking it just for me or maybe some of the more avid shooters that I know the people shoot more, I would definitely have pushed the SIG harder, but the Glock is a workhorse. It's simple. And I guess you, you got to train to your lowest student. <laughs> so it's easier to go, you know, the Glock is, you know, it's just a little more simple. Did you guys go with red dots? Uh, we did not. We actually just went to some red dot uh, show and tell that Trijicon put on. I think it was Trijicon and one of our local suppliers. And we did it. And I would love to do it. But again, that's uh, that's going to be a huge training thing. And actually the way ammunition is now with getting it. Uh, so we ordered ammunition last January and we still don't have it yet. Jesus. Mike, Mike Travis. uh for those of you guys that don't know, Mike is uh, one of our assistant instructors. He's helped out down at the sawmill a bunch. Uh, he's a, a cop in, in Pennsylvania. His training ammo is federal HST, not like a like a simulated federal HST, like actual federal HST. It was actually cheaper to buy that than it was to buy ball ammo, which I heard that and I was like, holy shit, like where have we come as a society when you can get that premium ammo for less expensive than than actual ball ammo. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know if it's less expensive, but we were able to get our duty ammo and we have, you know, a backup supply of it. But like I said, the ball ammo, we had to beg, borrow and steal from other agencies to 
so we could do a qualification course. Man, uh, you recently talked to, so, yeah, go ahead. No, it's like swearing by gear. Like I, I, I don't have any issues with these Glocks at all, but I mean, I, we're kind of limited to what we can and can't do. So whatever they give me, I run with and hopefully can make it work. And you said you went with Streamlight? Yeah, we had the Streamlight, and that, that was all cost. The, the TRL7As or TLR7As, the little the small compact one, mm-hmm. which is it's a good light. It doesn't add any length to the weapon. doesn't really add that much. And that was a that was a fight that I've been involved in fighting with the department for, well, most of the whole time I was here, is letting them get let, let everybody have lights on their guns. So now everybody in the department, plain clothes and uniform, we all have the same gun. We all have lights on them, and they have to stay on, as our procedures say. You know, uh, I know you're you're a fan of Bill, uh, Bill Rapier, one of our our buddies here. Uh, he's been on the podcast before. You know, Bill does a lot of training with low light conditions, and he says how he can run a course of fire with a handheld light, and he can run a course of fire with a weapon light. And if you just look at the data, say there's a hundred different shooters that run those two courses of fire with the two different methods of illuminating the target. He said, everyone can hit the target, but he said with the weapon light, it's usually faster. And you think about it when people say like, well, you know, that doesn't matter. I disagree. Um, you know, there's only three variables in any fight, right? Force timing and space. And if you can accomplish a task with better timing, uh, you're, you've got an advantage, right? So, uh, One of the things that you said was really interesting. You said, you know, our department is progressive. That <laughs> I, I think, I think people use that term so frequently now. Um, and progressive in mainstream culture, not necessarily like the culture that a lot of our listeners and you and I live in. Like, I think people use that term progressive to kind of defend actions that actually are are like counter to society. You know what I mean? Like the whole defunding the police. That, that was that was how I was making it politically correct and nice to say that we're progressive. Yeah, and we, we probably don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, right? No. I no. believe they should be hiring qualified people, not not just to meet a quota. Be and what, what what looks nice. I don't care what color, gender, whatever you are, if you can do the job, then you should be a cop. But when you're passing up qualified candidates to hire others, it's and I'm not saying we have hired some good qualified candidates and everybody is, you know, doing well. And I have a part in that because I get to do the background investigation. So I can, you know, sift through the wheat and chaff and, you know, make a good help. Well, give them information to make good decision. I don't make the decision. Yeah. <clears throat> can we talk about a qualified candidate that we have? Oh, well, who has a lot of experience on the New Haven PD left that, uh, department eventually became a field craft trainer someone that you and i both have trained with and know uh you know david costa i have not had the opportunity to train with him but i am really looking forward to it i will even go and be his range bitch and post targets for him just to hang out with him i think <laughs> he's a solid dude uh i met him during covid he uh yeah, he's just i've talked to him a lot and you know via you know instagram and you know, text messages and stuff. You introduced us and he's definitely a, like all of the, I mean, he, I, he is just the way he presents himself and articulates himself. And it's no disrespect to any other field craft instructor. Cause I haven't met an instructor for field craft that would be like, Oh, what's he doing here? I mean, everybody is like just 
clear across the board. Yeah. Super talented guy. Uh, he came to train land nav with me. We started talking. Uh, I introduced him to Sayak. He was actually in my Sayak training group in Bristol for a while. Uh, he is a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, a talented, talented shooter. I mean, uh, God, I mean, I talked to him before I put a red dot on a, on a Glock 17 and he gave me the rundown of, Hey, you need to do X, Y, Z. Um, and what I like about Dave is that he, number one, he's a Christian, he's a, a super religious guy and he doesn't have any unwavering ethics or values. You know what I mean? Like, which I can appreciate. He can see people's perspectives, but he is very set in his ways and that makes him a great family man, a great friend. Um, you know, and the interesting thing with him is, uh, he's such a good teacher, you know, like I've met some of these guys that are, that are, you know, very experienced in the field, but they can't translate it to the average person. Dave is the total opposite, right? Like he, he can tell you like, Hey, this is what I've noticed. This is what works well for civilians, right? You don't have to do it my way or, or this way or that way. Find the way that works for you. Um, and I think that's common. Yeah, go ahead. He's a great resource. Like when we were transitioning to the new guns and adding a weapons mounted light system on it, I reached out to him because I'm like, I've never transitioned in the, I had, I've had lights on my guns, but I've never instructed a transition. So I reached out to him and, you know, got some input from him on creating courses of fire and that kind of stuff. So he's an amazing resource. What do you think one of the, the best tips or takeaways is? about using a weapon mounted light as opposed to a handheld like a positive takeaway yeah like like what's a like what's a good training rep that people should get or something that they should be aware of well and, and i got i picked this up from dave so i definitely can't take credit for it is have it before they even put a live round in that pistol with the light on it they would draw the Draw the light, draw the weapon, activate it as you would with a two-handed grip using your support hand side thumb to activate the light, depending on how the switch is. This is just for us. And then the next one would be, you know, draw it and activate the light with just your, with your strong hand only. Okay. And then, then God forbid you have to use your other strong hand only activating the light with that activating it with your other strong hand side using a two-handed grip and just get them used to drawing the pistol and activating the light. like our lights we have set up so they it has a you know constant you know you can do momentary on and off constant on and if you hit it fast you can have the strobe on there um so just getting used to that using that light and then making sure that they know not to use it wrong. You know, the big thing was we don't want people, you know, searching the cars with the, you know, using that as a flashlight because it is a flashlight, but it's mounted to a gun. So we just had to make sure that they understood that the same general firearm safety rules apply to that gun with a light on it as the gun itself. Yeah. So that, that's how I pounded into their head. Don't bring that, don't use that light where you're not willing to, you know, you're not justified using deadly physical force on something. Yeah. The instructors at the SIG Academy who, you know, we're, we're partnered up with, we're friends with them. They always say like, just because you have a weapon mounted light on your pistol, does it give you permission to break any of the Cardinal firearms rules? You know? Um, so what's next for you, man? Like, obviously you're going to still be teaching a field craft. Uh, you've got a bunch of courses that are lined up. 
But I mean, what's next in your personal development? I mean, you've got the homestead thing going on. You got, I mean, at some point retirement, like what, what's next for Jerry Young? Well, on today's calendar, the date was 250 days till I can retire for my goal. I may go a little bit longer into next year, but I fully intend on retiring, if not October, then January. And then hoping just to stay on with Fieldcraft and maybe do some more courses. Um, actually, I'm going to New Jersey in two weeks to AI and instructor train under Kevin Owens for the personal security class. So I'm going to eventually be a personal security instructor. Hopefully we can get into doing some more, stay with the med stuff. Maybe I know they're working on some new POIs to get that instruction out there for changing, you know, a couple of different levels of the med, which I'm very interested in. And maybe do some survival training. I'd love to do another shotgun class at some point. That's, that's a lot of fun to teach. Uh, teaching is just fun for me, but I definitely want to get done with law enforcement because it's time. Uh, I did a background investigation, and I had been a cop longer than the applicant had been alive, so I knew it was pretty much getting me the time to go. Um, probably going to, you know, hoping maybe to move somewhere after we get retired. But that, So the homestead thing is going to sign a dwindle down until we figure out exactly what we're going to do. But I still do have all the animals running around that I have to take care of in this great northeast what do you what do you have now it's all chickens and goats right yeah well we have the two pet pigs that used to live in the house till the baby was born now they have their own area outside with heat because i can't have them be cold uh five goats i think we're down to 17 chickens cat couple dogs so it's it's enough to keep them fed and watered for a little while in the morning i mean i know people people obviously have good reason for having animals, right? Especially if you're trying to live self, uh, self-reliantly, but I mean, do you ever feel like, Jesus, this is a lot of work. <laughs> oh, every day. Like it, it's not <laughs> as bad in the summertime, but in the wintertime when it's cold and you know, their water freeze and stuff. So you got to bring like new water out to them all the time. I mean, they could probably go without some water, but I don't, I don't think that's right. But I originally got into that cause I, I had this big dream that, oh, I'm going to go off grid and I'm going to just do homesteading. Well, there's a huge learning curve on that to taking care of those animals. And and then that was part of it. Like I wanted to learn some like animal husbandry, as they call it. Like, Mm -hmm. so I learned how to vaccinate my animals. I learned how to treat the chickens when they had stuff wrong with them. Uh, You know, trim the goat's hooves, you know, treat them when they're sick. It's, It's just kind of a learning curve and it was something... Some good. Originally, we were going to milk the goats, and it just didn't work out because the mother had too many young ones, so we couldn't milk her. But you know, eventually, I might get more when I have more time to take care of them. Yeah, I think when people hear that term "animal husbandry," they think like bestiality. But quite honestly, it's more like you're married. No, 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 not that at all. <laughs> yeah, it's more like you're married to your pets, right? Married to your farm animals, and you you got a commitment to them the same way that you would to like your husband or your wife. But yeah, geez. and it's more like the care of them also, like the veterinary care also. So I think one thing that I'm sure some folks are probably wondering is like, do you ever burn out? Because like, I've, I've known you for a long time. I know that you like, you do throw yourself a hundred percent into your job and like, you're, you're like constantly on the go. Like whenever we would go camping, you were the one that was like, oh, by the way, I made X, Y, Z. And we're like, how the hell did you do that? Like he's constantly working. Like you're the poster child for restless ass syndrome. Um, do you ever feel like you burn out? No. 
I, I tell you, I just, I think it's because I sleep good. Like, I don't, I'm not worried about staying up late watching TV. I get up bright and early in the morning so I can get some stuff done before I go to work. But I'm, I'm in bed by 8.30 watching videos, probably asleep by 9. So I get my solid eight hours of sleep a night, well, usually around 7. And then, you know, I like to, I just, when I, when I'm not active, that's when I get like grumpy and anxious and just don't feel good. I, I just need to be doing something. Yeah. I was up last night at, or this morning at two 30 in the morning, I just couldn't sleep. And I was on my phone doing what everyone does looking for something. I watched a video of a guy that brought home a lobster from the supermarket and he kept it. And I was like, this is the most interesting thing in the world. But then I got like another hour and a half of sleep and then plenty of black rifle coffee. So I'm, I'm good to go. Damn. How long do you think we've been, we've been talking? Um, probably 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah. We're, we're right at the 50 minute mark. So, you know, we're, uh, I know you're a busy guy. I know you got a bunch of stuff to do and, and, you know, I've got to get to work over here too, but I'm going to give you the the final word here to tell the listeners anything that you want to tell them. Like you can start off with like, Hey, this is what I'm going to tell you about. And I'll just start talking or here, here's a question that you might have. I'm going to answer it. So I'm giving you the final word and then I'll sign us off and I'll let you go. Well, let's see. Uh, how about we end with a police related story that's comical fire away. All right. So when I was working on the drug task force undercover, they sent me out in this piece of crap car to pick up a prostitute and they were, all the older guys were kidding me like, Oh, we're going to leave you hanging out to dry. We're going to leave you hanging out to dry. You know, we're going to wait till the last minute before we swoop in. So I picked the prostitute up. I go to this location that's kind of out of the way. I give them the signal. They're supposed to come take me down. Well, little did I know that I lost all four of my tails, the other, the takedown cars in traffic. So I'm thinking that they're just waiting and I'm giving the signal, giving the signal. She's not coming or they're not coming. And she starts undoing my belt. I'm like, Hey, guess what? I'm a cop. So she reaches up. And at the time we had our, undercover transmitters were pagers. So I know I'm dating myself. So she grabs that and jumps out of the car and starts running down the street. So I'm thinking, Holy shit. She just stole this expensive transmitter. So I don't have any idea where I am because I'm new to the city of Troy. I'm chasing her down the street. I catch her. I go to spin around, tell her she's under arrest. Cause you know, I'm a big cop Superman undercover. She punched me right square in the face and split my face wide open, busted my lips open and, and blood. So eventually I took her into custody and I ran to the corner to get a street sign so I could call the cars and tell them where I was on the radio. So yeah, you never, uh, you're not Superman in that law enforcement uniform. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, damn. All right, man. Well, Hey, Jerry, uh, where can, where can people find you? I know you're not big on, on Instagram, but if people need to, I'm trying, reach to, you- I'm trying to expand. So it's a uh, at young, Jerry young with a G. And uh, that, that's pretty much the only social media platform I'm on until I get retired from law enforcement. I, I think we need to come up with like a code word or something that people can send you in like the mess, like the follow request. So people like, you know, that they're not some weirdo or some, some creep. Well, I kind of just, uh, I, I kind of, I do have it locked. So they need permission to do it. So I, I, I just kind of do a little quick background check on them and then accept them. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, man, uh, I'm not sure when you're, you're coming back out here to, uh, Utah, but you know, you, 
uh, your wife, Julia, myself, we'll all get together. We'll, we'll hang out. Uh, she says hello, by the way. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll go get some crumble cookies or, or something. Yeah. That, or some, uh, hideout. Oh my God. Yeah. The hideout barbecue. That's for sure. Um, and I don't know when I'm coming back to the East coast, but hopefully we can bring some of these classes that we did out here, out your way. Um, the hunter prep class, the shotgun class, you know, breakout stuff like that. Yep. Anybody has any locations they want me to look into, they can hit me up on Instagram and I'll be sure to do the uh, legwork and I'll run it up the chain of command to see if we can get a class in your area. Also. Dude, that sounds awesome. Well, Jerry, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue to stay in touch. You're one of my favorite people that I call a friend. And, uh, I hope that you, uh, you know, finish out the career with all positive notes. Roger that. Well, thank you. I appreciate you, brother. All right, man. Stay on for just a bit. Guys, thanks so much for, uh, for listening to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm Kevin Estella. Till next time.